Uh, this is going to be fun for me. I, um, I'm not sure it's going to be fun for you. In fact, you might walk out of here saying that was the most boring thing that ever happened to me. Um, <clears throat> but guys, in the in the um, in the spirit of um, in the spirit of um, give a man a fish, and he eats for one day, but teach him to fish, and he fishes all his life. In that spirit, that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, we're we're going to have a lesson in hermeneutics. Um, let's start with that. Um, let's start with the word hermeneutics. We're going to have a lesson in hermeneutics. Look at it right. Uh, is it not on? I punched a button. Well, can y'all see that? And we'll just add. Is it? We're going to have a lesson in hermeneutics. Uh, I'll I'll hit it again. Um, guys, um, hermeneutics is a science. It's a science of interpretation. What I'm hoping is what I'm going to do tonight is going to help you profit from the study of your own Bible. Uh, the, the hermeneutics came from the, you remember the Greek god Hermes? It's not working. Hermes, which was the messenger. Uh, in fact, um, Paul is called Hermes in Acts 14, is it? Um, hermeneutics is how you understand your Bible or, or rules that help you understand your Bible. Oh, um, what should I do? Could I just wipe all that off? And, and, and I hit um, one of these. I hit this one, don't I? Jason is brilliant, but um, I hit that one, don't I? Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, look at us. We are on the road. I did. It... <laughs> Steve Austell, you got me into this. Uh, you said this is a... It, what? <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll start all over. Okay, Jason, that's enough. All right. <laughs> oh, look at there. Hermeneutics. Um, uh, it, hermeneutics gives you rules by which you interpret your Bible. Uh, it comes from the Greek, I mean, from a, the, the Greek god Hermes, which meant messenger, but I don't know whether that bothered, uh, um, interests you at all. But now, guys, let me give you an example of a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic that many of you have. By the way, we're going to come, I'm going to show you this in Romans 9, just a second. But some of you are a literalist. Literalist. That's your hermeneutic. And so when you look at the Bible, you say, I interpret the Bible literally. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Unfortunately, it's a it's somewhat misleading hermeneutic because if you say i'm going to interpret my bible literally then what are you what do you do with passages like john 10 where jesus is called the door i mean does he have a knob um so but if you if you apply this hermeneutic to the bible to your interpretation of the bible 
you can get yourself in some trouble. Uh, another great passage is Revelation 20, where uh, Satan is bound and he's uh, got a chain and yada, yada, yada. And, and I want to I ask you, do you believe that Satan has a literal chain around his neck? Do you? How about this? Uh, that passage also talks about a lake of fire. Do you believe that hell is a literal lake of fire? Hmm. Well, if you're a literalist, you do. Uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, do you think that that's a literal thousand years? You do if your hermeneutic is that of a literalist. But it's very confining. And um, very frankly, if you're a dispensational pre-mill, uh, you'll probably have this hermeneutic. <laughs> and everybody else who doesn't have that hermeneutic is a liberal for a, um, uh, for a dispensationalist. That's unfortunate, but that's a, that's a hermeneutic. That's an example of hermeneutic. Now, I want to show you guys how that gets you in a little bit of trouble. Um, because Romans 9.6 is a real challenge. Look at it. It's a challenge to, it's, it stretches one of the rules of hermeneutics. It doesn't violate it, <coughs> nor does it contradict it, but it stretches it. Um, right, let me give you the rule first. The rule is that the best interpreter of your scripture, uh, of, your, of the text, the best interpreter of the scripture is scripture. That's rule number one. But, secondly, the context is what's going to help you most in interpreting your Bibles. Okay? Context. You've heard that little saying about a, a text out of context is a pretext. Have you heard that? Um, well, so context is very important in hermeneutics. But you come to Romans 9.6. By the way, we're going to have to spend more than tonight on Romans 9.6, I can just tell you. Uh, but you come to Romans 9.6, and it says... Um, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. <laughs> all right, now guys, hang with me for a second. Stick your finger right there and find, if you can, Nehemiah. Get set, go. And who, who gets there first without using the, the thumbprints? The book of Nehemiah. Eight. Oh, the Carmens are back there gloating because they got it fast. But, I mean, she was a Baptist and she had sword grills. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> now, guys, do you know what happens in the book of Nehemiah? The book of Nehemiah is where Nehemiah goes and he builds the wall around Jerusalem. You know, the wall is torn down and, and Nehemiah comes back and builds it in 52 days and everybody, you know, all the enemies, they got yada, yada, yada. And they get, the, they get the wall built and after they get the wall built, they have a celebration. The, the, chapter 8 is the celebration. All right? And so everybody gets together and they're all out there. If you look at like verse 4, I'm not about to read verse 4 or verse 5, well, verse 5, but look at all those names in there. I mean, and they stood in a wooden platform that made for that purpose. And it was, a, it was a giant outdoor worship service. And they got all those names of the priests there. And I'm not going to try. Look at verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. It's standing. He was standing on a wooden platform. As he opened it, all the people stood up. 
which is something we probably ought to do and don't. But anyway. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, those guys uh, helped the people to understand the law. Keep reading. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Do you see that? There is a job that is to be performed by people like me that requires the use of hermeneutics. Because what I'm supposed to be doing, and that, by the way, doesn't mean that you can't interpret your own Bibles, but it means that, there, that God has called into in, and put into place a group of people who are supposed to be able to read from the book of the law of God and give it sense. Explain it so that the people understand the reading. Now, guys, to do that, it's not as easy as it might appear because the Bible is not as simple as you might want to think it is. Now, not to confuse you, is, it, is the gospel simple? Yes, it is. A, 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 an imbecile, a simpleton can understand it, yes. But it is also so gloriously complex and so marvelously beautiful that you will never plumb its depths. <laughs> so, what I'm saying to you is hermeneutics is the science that helps people like me give the sense so that the people understand the reading. That's what I'm doing. And, um, you know, when you fall asleep back there, that means that I didn't do my job very well. And apparently I don't do my job very well <laughs> because a lot of you sleep. Um, but, but look at verse 6, guys. This is not easy. You can't imagine how much can be said about verse 6. And let me show you why. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Remember that rule of hermeneutics about context? Here's how verse 6 stretches that rule. There's a word in verse 6 that's repeated. What's that word? Israel. And it means two different things, and it's almost side by side. I mean, what could be a, a firmer context than almost being side by side? So you would think that the context would be able to help us Understand those two Israels. Uh, but it doesn't. You gotta go, you, you gotta go further away from Romans 9 to understand. Look, look, look at it. It says, For not all those who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. <laughs> Alright, now tell me. What does the first Israel refer to? No. That's a good guess, though. I love to say no. What? The nation. The nation of Israel. It refers to a geographic, geopolitical entity known as Israel. And it says, not everybody who belongs to Israel belongs to Israel. Now, what kind of nonsense is that? 
So you belong to Israel, but you don't belong to Israel. Wait a minute. Uh, You belong to the nation, but you don't belong to the nation. No. That's not what it means. Because those two uses of that word mean one thing one time and another thing another time. (laughs) Now, guys, in the spirit of teaching you how to fish, my hope is that when you read your Bible, you'll, you'll can profit. But anyway, so what do you think that second Israel means? Well, I should have never thrown this open. Uh, that was a huge mistake. Um, I, I tell you what. Um, go with me, if you will. Keep your finger there and go to Galatians 3. We have, Kathy Saunders has helped us. She has told us that the first Israel refers to the nation, and she is right. Now, it's that second Israel. Now, go to, go to Galatians 3, and let's read verses 7 through 9. Okay, stay with me, and it's going to tell you what the second Israel means. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, there it is, guys. All right, who's Abraham? Father of Israel. I mean, well, actually, Jacob was, but I mean, he started the whole thing. He had Isaac, yada, yada, yada. So he says, Who is it that are sons of Abraham? Those who have faith. So tell me, you who sit here tonight and have faith in Christ, who are you? You're Israel. <laughs> You're Israel. Not everybody of Israel belongs to Israel. Not everybody who was born in the ethnic, national, geopolitical confines of the nation of Israel belongs to Israel. Because the real Israel are the ones who've exercised faith. Those are the sons of Abraham. Do you see that? Guys, this is not the only place this happens. Let me, let me show you a couple more. Go to, go to John 3. I tell you what, start with John 1. Let me show you 2 in John. Again, I, all I'm trying to do tonight is just help you interpret your Bibles. We'll come back to the text next week. Well, January the 3rd. Uh, um, make that the 10th. <laughs> okay. Um, where was I? John 1, verse 10. Look at this, guys. This is, this is great fun for me. I hope you're not bored, too bored. Um, look here. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, one word, same Greek word. It's the word cosmos, found three times in the same verse. You would think, well, gosh, but it means one thing in the, in the verse. That's the context. It's right there in the verse. So if, if I understand it one time, uh, then I ought to be able to understand it all three times. Wrong. He was in the world. What's that referring about? Referring to? Earth. Earth. Planet Earth. He was in there, but the world knew him not. Can you say planet Earth didn't know him? I mean, you see what I'm saying? If you say, okay, the first time world appears, it means planet Earth. Okay, hermeneutics says that the context insists that the word and the <coughs> mean the same. So if I come over to the second world, 
And it says, and the world knew him not. And I take this meaning of world, and it's planet Earth, and I plug it in over here. I've got nonsense on my hands. He was in the world, but the world knew him not. The world doesn't know. People know. So you've got the world three times in the same verse. And by the way, I could probably make a point that it means, make the case that all three of those worlds mean different things. The word world being used three different ways in the same verse. You want to see it again? Uh, How about John 3? Uh, John 3, verse 17. Um, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, guys, when you're reading your Bibles and you're trying to figure out what this says, you might need to know this. Ah, I better slow down and ask. I see the same words, but they don't mean the same things. Now, guys, that's step one. I want to take you on another step. What we're trying to do is teach a man to fish. Remember? And I'm using Romans 9, 6 as an example of, uh, you know, the the struggles that you might uh, encounter. Uh, Go with me to Galatians 4. Oh, this is... This is great. Galatians 4. Galatians 4. All right, guys, let me read. um, uh, I I don't want to read a whole lot, but. Okay, uh, begin um, at verse 22. Uh, Galatians 4, 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Everybody knows Abraham's two sons. What were their names? Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, one was born, uh, one born by a slave woman. Who was that? Ishmael. And the other born by a free woman. Who's that? Isaac. Good. But the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. That is, you know, what any miracle that one. Uh, he had one of those, those concubines in there. Uh, one of those slave girls. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. That is, dead womb. God came and awakened it and, you know, put a baby in there. Now look here, guys. Look at this. Look at verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. (laughs) Do you see what the Apostle Paul just did to you? He took an historical event... Something that actually happened. Abraham had a wife. Her name was Sarah. But she was dead in the womb. And so they ran in uh, Hagar, the handmaid, and said, sleep with her. and Let her have the babies. And so he come, he said, well, that makes sense to me. you know." And so he goes in there. And what man wouldn't like that deal? And so uh, he, uh, he uh, sleeps with Hagar. Hagar has a baby. And Ishmael. What a mess. Ishmael. Bad, bad, bad choice. Then God comes back and says, wait a minute. I didn't mean to intend that. I'm going to do it through Sarah. No kidding. Sarah has a, has a baby, Isaac, you know that story. But do you get the point, guys? Paul is saying that indeed is an historical event that has historical value. It really did happen in time and space. But you know what? For its real meaning, you need to understand it metaphorically. What does that mean? That means that historical event is a metaphor. You know what a metaphor is? It's likenesses, you know. This is like this and this is like that. Guys, 
so much of what you read in the Old Testament is to be understood metaphorically. The whole sacrificial system. You know, they slain all those lambs and this goat and that ram and that bull and that cup of oil and that. What is all that sacrificial system supposed to be letting you know about? Christ. That is, there is going to be one grand sacrifice for sin that's going to sweep all that away. It's supposed to be readying you. So when you're reading that stuff, you're, you're supposed to be looking for something far more than, oh, guess what happened in Abraham's life? How about that? He had a baby by that Hagar woman. And my goodness, he then he had a woman. How about that? Yes, that's true. But there's more. Far, far, far more. By the way, let me show it to you one more time. Uh, go to John, uh, uh, the Gospel of... Um, Chapter 16. And, and boy, well, you'll be able to enter in this one. I mean, I, I think. Uh, this, I feel like these guys. Um, John 16, um, in verse 25. By the way, if you've got a red letter one, this is in red. It's, I've got a black letters and mine's in black. But yours, if you've got a red letter, this is in red. That means Jesus is talking in verse 25 and he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming. I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plenty about the Father. And then look at, look at verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of, figurative speech. What is Jesus doing? Much of the ministry of Jesus Christ is cloaked in a certain degree of mystery because he's using figurative language. And so you're clipping through your New Testaments and you're just loving having spending spend time with God and drink sip your cup of coffee and I'm I'm just so thrilled you can. And then you come across these things and you're thinking, Oh yeah, they had a baby. Hey, they had a baby. Had it, had it, has it ever occurred to you? Wait a minute. Wait just a second. Let me slow down here. Maybe there's more here. Maybe there's something else that I need to be looking for. You know, I have a friend who says, Jesus Christ is found on every page of the Old Testament. That's a good hermeneutical principle. Find him. And sometimes it's harder than other, But find him. Most of the time he's there. Now, guys, here's the lesson. The lesson in hermeneutics. In reading your Bibles, you must understand that oftentimes the meaning is layered Layered, L-A-Y, layered. That there's something that is very profitable for you simply on the surface of the words, the surface of the, of the text. But then there, if you go down a layer, you might find something else. Or maybe if you went down a, another layer, you might find... And, and I want to I sh- give you an example. Um, go to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. Does everybody know the story of Genesis 39? Let me tell you real quick. Genesis 39 is about Joseph. Remember, Joseph gets, he's the guy with the many colored coat, and he gets sold by his brothers, and, and uh, he gets picked up and sold to this caravan going down to Egypt, and, and uh, there he is, you know, just being abused, and, and, and uh, he gets bought by one of Pharaoh's captains, Potiphar. And so he comes into Potiphar, brings him into his house, and puts him over, puts him in charge of everything. 
and there's uh, the one big problem. Potiphar's got a wife. And Potiphar's wife, um, mm, she's got some issues. And she, um, she makes some very unseemly um, uh, approaches to sweet little Joseph. And you remember he, uh, he accuses her, lies about her, she lies about him, and he runs and all that business. Now here's the point, guys. You can read this text. You can read Genesis 39, and you can say, I know what that's about. Genesis 39 gives me instructions as to how I might resist temptation. And you'd be absolutely right. And you will profit, and it'll be good, and, uh, and you will learn things about, for instance, he says, um, I'll not sin against God, and he runs, you know, running from temptation. I mean, you can read it, and you can say, man... That's really helpful for me in, in developing a strategy to resist temptation. That's a good thing. Let me tell you about the next layer. Just underneath that is a whole other layer, gang. Uh, look at verse 2 of uh, Genesis 39 if you're there. It says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful man, and he was in the house of uh, uh, an Egyptian master. Wait a minute. The Lord was with Joseph? What do you mean? By the way, that's about four times in chapter 39. Would you think that the Lord was with you if your brothers had just sold you into slavery and you were now living in slavery in a foreign country and some woman is just trying to make time with you and, and you're working as a slave and as a servant for some Egyptian? Would you think the Lord is with you? Does that sound like the Lord is with you? My point is this. The next layer is the whole lesson of the redemptive purposes of suffering. We could spend two sermons simply talking about the beauties and the redemptive purposes that God has in mind in allowing His people to experience pain. We could do that. And it would be perfectly taught in this text, perfectly valid in this text. There wouldn't be any importation of any kind of other... It's right there, along with um, ways to you know, um, avoid temptation. But then there's another layer. <laughs> there's still something else. And by the way, I'm going to give you three. But that's because I'm such a bimbo. I bet you there's another three. I mean, if you really had a good teacher of God's Word, he'd show you three more. But you're stuck with me. Um, the next layer that you could find is you could watch the Bible tell you things about Jesus, Jesus through looking at Joseph. That is, Joseph is a type of Christ. And in his life, there are certain predictions about the ultimate son of Jacob who will come later. Things like, Joseph has become a servant. Hmm. And um, there are, look at verse 5. It says, uh, from that time he made him overseer of the house and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. That is, uh, men are blessed because of Joseph. Like Jesus. Um, Joseph was tempted but did not sin. Like Jesus. Um, Joseph was falsely accused. Like Jesus. Um, and in the midst of his accusation, he attempted no defense. Like Jesus. Do you see that, guys? You could, you could read this with nothing more than eyes that say... Tell me about my Savior. 
and you would benefit greatly. Or you could say, I am wrestling with temptation and this guy encourages me. That would be good. Or I'm in a period in my life that is so difficult and I feel like I am, God has inflicted, afflicted me. And that would, be, that would be found here too. It just depends on which layer you get stuck on. And you know what? Here's what God does. In His marvelously beautiful sovereignty, knowing exactly where you are at this place and time in your life, the thing that He alerts your soul to is the one that's most necessary for you at the moment. Is it temptation? Oh, then He'll show you just how to resist temptation from just... Oh, is it, is it suffering right there? I mean, your, your heart will be magnetized to it. Is it that you've lost a sense of the beauty of the Savior? He'll draw you to that too. Because it's all there. Those are... Those are layers that are in the same chapter, the same story. So we go back to Romans 9. We see two words there that require us to make a piece of an interpretive call. And that's what hermeneutics does. Hopefully, um, my, uh, my words for you tonight... Their design, or at least my hope is, that your Bible will become more fun for you um, as you study it and keep in mind some of this stuff, uh, not reading too rapidly. Because normally, ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the real meaning of the text lies somewhere just below the surface of the words. And it's our job to go find out what's there. Hope that was helpful. Let's close and then I'll, um, I'll give you the results and we'll all go home. Father, uh, I thank you for this book. Uh, there's not another one like it in all the, the history of mankind. And it is um, everything that we need for life and godliness. And I pray that uh, stimulations like these um, might be helpful to your people as they grab hold of their Bibles uh, with a cup of coffee and in a quiet moment, and discover the great beauty of the God of Israel, the God of the church, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my Father in heaven. Now, Lord, uh, dismiss us with a sense of great sobriety and a great excitement that your word is our life. It contains everything that we need to know all about this Savior of ours who indeed is life for us. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.